We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. We need at least a $50,000 minimum. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. That was the extraordinary exchange during a CNN town hall meeting in Milwaukee the other night in which President Biden drew a clear line in the sand. No, he would not back a proposal being pushed by progressive groups to forgive up to $50,000 in student loan debts. It was a signal that Biden, even while adopting some of the progressive agenda of his party, is not about to be pushed around by the left, or at least not be seen as being pushed around. Is this a sign of a widening gulf among Democrats as to how far and how fast Biden is prepared to go? And what about the even bigger rift within the Republican Party between the Donald Trump wing and the anti-Trump forces now led by none other than minority leader Mitch McConnell? We'll discuss with two shrewd observers of the Capitol Hill scene, Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer, the founders of the newly created Punchbowl News site, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are now joined by Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer. Jake and Anna, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. So, Jake, you've kind of become a big deal now. (laughs) Uh, You run this uh, new successful news site about Capitol Hill. Uh, You and Anna uh, co-wrote the book, The Hill to Die On. But I think we got to start out by reminding our listeners that you started out as a Newsweek intern working for (laughs) moi back during the 2008 campaign. So just to um, remind folks of your humble roots. Well, I have that indelible image of your office in the corner of the Newsweek Washington Bureau, uh, which was very well kept together and very, very well I shouldn't have gone down this road, I now see. (laughs) (laughs) A little too dangerous. Um, Look, let's start out. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here between the uh, frictions in the Democratic Party and the uh, war within the Republican Party. But I just want to start out because it's just so delicious. Ted Cruz, man, I mean, his half his state is freezing in the cold, no water, no power. And the guy flies off to Cancun for a vacation. I mean, how much of a bigger political tin ear can you have? Uh, You can't. Uh, I think it's pretty, pretty bad. Uh, I'll say this. Being a member of Congress is no doubt tough on your family, tough on your life, tough on on every element of your being. But it's just it's insane to me that you could think that this is a good idea. I can't imagine what is going on in his head that leads him to do this. Sometimes you get the the impression with some members of Congress that they actually just don't like some of the meat and potatoes of the job. And that would be the obvious takeaway here. Right. I mean, because the reality is and and I think we could all concede that there probably is little that a uh, a senator would be doing on a day to day basis during a disaster. 
maybe there's something he would be doing. Showing a little empathy, maybe, for your constituents who yeah, are suffering. How about that? This. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I agree with you. I'm not, but I, there's literal, I, I, I can't even figure out any reason to believe that this is the right thing for him to do or this makes any sense at all. And so I want to ask this question is how much of an impact uh, this will have on Cruz politically, because, you know, the sort of rules of politics have been upended in so many ways. We're so polarized. We're so sorted ideologically. Uh, In the old days, you know, a mayor, for example, who uh, Isakoff and I will remember uh, Marion Barry, who in 1987 was was in uh, Southern California partying and uh, enjoying the Super Bowl while D.C. got hit with two feet of snow, you know, that all politics is local, that those kinds of things could be catastrophic for politicians. I get your point, Jake, about, you know, he's a senator. There's not much he could have done. But is this the kind of thing that that, that in this age sticks or not. And I know that I'm asking you to speculate here, but we do a lot of that on Skullduggery. I would have two points. Uh, one, I think that it's not just Mary and Barry partying at the, the Super Bowl. I mean, this is a crisis of the entire state that's being felt right now. People have died. I think that in terms of his constituent services alone, it's going to hurt him in a very big way. He's going to have to do a huge mea culpa to try to win back, I think, support, not just of Democrats or anything like that, but of Republicans who are really frustrated and and don't even know when they're going to have water next. To have the optics of your senator going to Cancun on a family vacation is, I think, pretty bad. I think the second thing is there's no doubt in my mind that Ted Cruz wants, believes he should be president and that 2024, he was probably going to take another look at it. I think that attack ads alone, I mean, cut themselves at this point. Yeah, yeah. I guess just saying, hey, give me a break. I just had to sit through that impeachment trial for a week. I needed a vacation. <laughs> Probably is not going to cut it. I mean, the economy is in crisis. Unemployment's higher than it's been in a long time. And this is a senator who thinks he needs to go on vacation with his family. I get Jake's point that, yes, senators are real people, too, but they also have a huge responsibility. Yeah, I would also say I'm not saying that that I'm not excusing this. I'm just saying even his excuse is is not reason enough for the lunacy that he's engaged in. You know what I mean? That's and he's not getting any backup from anybody. So that's kind of uh, tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Let's get to the frictions within the Democratic Party. And I did think that the Biden response to the woman who was pushing for the $50,000 in student loan forgiveness was a moment. You know, it was Biden trying to make a point that went beyond uh, the particulars of the student loan issue. Put this in the context of, you know, the sort of broader tensions out there about whether he's moving fast enough, whether he's doing enough, uh, whether it be minimum wage or student loan forgiveness or uh, being more aggressive in the COVID relief package. How how real are these tensions right now? And do they have the potential to get much bigger than they currently are? Yeah, I think I think the um, I, the answer is yes, they they do. I would say this: this fits all under the banner of Washington is not the same as it was when Joe Biden left the Senate, right? I mean, uh, you have a lot of interesting cross currents at the moment, right? You have Chuck Schumer who's linked himself up with the left and pushing for this 
$50,000 student loan forgiveness. And by the way, is that all about because he's worried that AOC is going to primary him? Well, I don't know that it's all about that. I would think he would say that what he says is he's grown more progressive because it fits the needs of his constituents. Um, I think he's obviously worried about about that, um, about AOC and a primary challenge. But, you know, listen, I, I think the left is going to become increasingly frustrated. The $15 minimum wage is not going to end up in the COVID relief bill. They're not going to get $50,000 of student loan forgiveness. He's playing footsie with Republicans on a lot of issues. He's not blowing up the filibuster. He's not embracing immediately a $3 trillion infrastructure bill. So put this all in the same kind of pot and stir it up, you know, and I think that's the reality of of Joe Biden's presidency is that he's a figure from a different time. And and he's had a tough time, I think you'd agree, Anna, and fitting into the Democratic Party of today. Can I just ask a very quick question? Because you you mentioned $15 minimum wage. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. But is that because of the uh, arcane rules of, of reconciliation and the and the bird rule? Or are there or it's because I mean, because he will have uh, I mean, moderate Democrats would back that, but it's just not it's not possible. It runs afoul of those rules. Correct. That's what you're saying. Both things. Yeah. Both things. My yeah, estimation. But 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 it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, he would have problems with moderates. Right. You have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have both said that they don't believe it should be part of this package. But even before you get there the arcane rules are going to throw it out on a myriad of potential issues. So there's nobody thinks that it's going to be part of the final package. So last week um, we had that, um, uh, that thing, (laughs) the impeachment trial, uh, which we were all glued to the TV for hours on end. Uh, And then the outcome was after we all got very excited on Saturday morning for a few hours that we were going to get witnesses and live testimony and actually learn some new information. Um, The outcome was pretty much what we all expected. Did the House managers score any real lasting points by going through this, did it in any way fundamentally change the public perception of the Trump presidency? Or was this, as some have suggested, a lot of sound and fury ultimately signifying nothing? Yeah, I I mean, I I don't think it signifies nothing. I think it's certainly in terms of the history books will go down uh, in them as the end of a, a, you know, kind of a disgraceful end of the Trump administration after the January 6th insurrection. I think most people would say on the merits, the Democratic House managers did a very good job of laying out the case, making, frankly, making stars out of, of many of them in terms of folks that had never really been heard of on the national stage. Do I think that it fundamentally changes anything to your point, Mike? Like, no, I think the first impeachment didn't play in the last election. This next impeachment is not going to play in 2022. I don't think it necessarily hurts Donald Trump in the sense of his supporters are still with him. They were with him no matter what. So I, I don't think even if he had, even if more, you know, send de- or Republican senators had moved to impeach him, I don't think that that would have changed their minds. They are true Donald Trump supporters at the end of the day. Jake, um, McConnell voted to acquit and then minutes later gave that speech in which he 
you know, not effectively, he did say that the House managers uh, prove their case on the facts, not on the constitutional question, uh, but on the factual question. I mean, he acknowledged that Donald Trump incited a riot. Um, so what's he trying to do? Yeah, that's a good question. So my view of this is a bit cynical, uh, and it comes from <laughs> have, having spent a lot of time with McConnell over the years. Anna and I have spent a lot of time with McConnell, as is our co- our other co-founder, John Bresnahan, uh, who you guys know. Um, but Mitch McConnell is driven. His political power comes from his, his uh, 49 colleagues, his Senate Republican colleagues. So there was this kind of myth that was perpetuated, I think, on, you know, in 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 on the Upper West Side and in L.A. that Mitch McConnell would somehow just divorce himself from the realities of his party and have a West Wing moment of voting against Donald Trump. And that's just not how Mitch McConnell operates. It never is. Mitch McConnell is about one thing. He wants to win. And winning in this sense is staying leader of the Senate Republican Conference. He had seven members, seven out of 50 voted for conviction. That is not a big number. And he wouldn't, it's not a sustainable position for Mitch McConnell as he's trying to take back the Senate to be in that position. It's just not. I, I, I wish I wish there was a, a more wholesome and fulsome answer, but it's not. I think, frankly, um, the position he found himself in is that he did find the behavior objectionable on the policy, on the substance. He said, you know, I, he didn't believe or he found a way not to believe that um, that. It was he he found a way to believe it was unconstitutional. And and I think that was a convenient place for him to find himself, Uh, you know, and I think that at the end of the day, we all knew he was going to most of us who understand him and understand the Capitol knew he was going to get there. But listen, it was it it was it was tough to ignore the substance of that speech, which was he's guilty. (laughs) And the process by which we the process we used didn't allow me to say that in his view. And I'm not excusing it, but that's. That's what I believe at the end of the day. So he he tried to have it both ways, essentially. Yeah. Look, on one level, you know, we all knew he was guilty in the broad sense from day one. I mean, we all watched Trump's speech. We we all saw what happened uh, uh, after that, and it was clear he uh, he incited the crowd uh, to go storm the Capitol and do what they did. On the other hand, in terms of getting really inside what Trump was doing that day, how the most damning allegations relate to the way he was dismissing what was going on at the Capitol, calling uh, Tuberville uh, to try to get him to raise more objections, not caring about the fact that Pence had to be ushered out uh, for his own safety from Trump's own supporters. And it seems to me that that's Kind of what I would like to know, and I think most members of the public would like to know more about, and only the 9-11 style commission that Pelosi has now endorsed can get us there. A 9-11 commission, bipartisan with subpoena power, can uncover facts that go beyond the press reports the House managers were relying on for big chunks of their presentation. How real is this 9-11 proposal from Pelosi? Uh, Is there, I haven't seen the legislation be introduced, but uh, I mean, how quick of a fast track is that on? I mean, it's it's very real. I I don't think that this is, she's 
proposing it and, and has an expectation that it doesn't go forward. And I think the real question that is on my mind is she endorsed today that she wants it to have subpoena power. And that is really what gives a lot of teeth to a commission like this. But she's gotten recommendations from the 9-11 Commission about what worked, what didn't. I think the big question to me, though, is will Republicans be okay with that? She's waiting for the Republican response to what she has proposed. But I mean, this is going to go through the process. I expect it to move forward, don't you, Jake? Yeah, it's going to move forward. And the subpoena thing is big. And you guys both are familiar with the 9-11 Commission. And she, what she told us today was that Lee Hamilton and Tom Keene, who, who who chaired that commission, have sent her a letter about what worked, what didn't work. And she's basically saying, she told us today, that she's basically endorsed the 9-11 commission framework for this next commission, which would include subpoena power. It would, would, would include a whole bunch of, of pretty powerful tools to, to get to the bottom of this. Now, I think there's a fear on the right, and I think there will be a fear on the right from Trump supporters uh, and Republicans that this could turn into a fishing expedition in their view uh, of Trump. I mean, I I was here that day. These were Trump supporters who came to the Capitol after the president told them to come to the Capitol. So I'm not really sure where the fishing expedition comes into play. I mean, and I think legitimately, and, and you guys just said this before, but like, we don't know what Trump was doing that day. Right. There's a whole kind of like clutch of people in D.C. who say, let's leave it behind. Let's not deal with it. Let's whatever. But like there are a lot of people, that, you know, that we have no idea what he was saying to Mark Meadows, what he was saying to people around him. And I think like people deserve to know that, you know, I, think I, I couldn't deserve- agree with you more. What would McCarthy <laughs> have said under oath? Uh, if he got called as a witness about his conversation with Donald Trump that afternoon? And what will he say when he does get called under oath by this 9-11 style commission? Anna, that's a good question. You want to take a crack at that first? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think, I just think, I think we should leave it at this, Jake, because I don't think we want to put words in uh, Kevin McCarthy's mouth. I'll let him, I think we should let him speak for himself. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about what was said. We certainly have seen the Jamie Herrera Butler statement about what her recollection is from a second hand, you know, what she was told. Yeah. But that he was, was the only one who had the conversation. See, I got all excited when Jamie Raskin said, we're going to, we're going to call her as a witness and we're going to get her notes. Now her notes would have been, you know, a stronger piece of evidence than what she recalls secondhand of what McCarthy told her about it, but it still was secondhand. But then you get to the question, did McCarthy tell others the same thing, which she suggested, right? She suggested this was not a singular account to her. There were also accounts. McCarthy told something similar. others. You also have the Tuberville call, right? Because, I mean, he's already told reporters that he spoke to Trump and that he told him he couldn't talk to him because Mike Pence had just been hustled out of the chamber and he was going to be hustled out as well. And that's, we know that that is before Trump tweets attacking his vice president. I don't think that's 100% clear. Lee introduced or gave the time code for that phone call and it was actually after Trump's tweet, I believe. Am yeah, I right but, about but that? Yeah, but even Jake? if you take even if you take the most innocent explanation, and I was in that gaggle with Tuberville, President is calling him 
in the middle of an insurrection. Yeah, yeah. And no. There's like, nothing even exculpatory the innocent, about this. Yeah, <laughs> even the most innocent explanation of it. And 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 Tuberville, who I've dealt with now four or five times, and I thought he would be, you know, totally disengaged with the press. He's actually super engaged with the press and seems to be coming to this with almost like a oh, this is fun type type. Cool. <laughs> and of course, one and one of the house managers pointed out he, he Trump didn't have to have a conversation with Tuberville. This is all playing right. out on television, right? I mean, we, we all know what's this happening. This wasn't hidden, right? I mean, it was like all over the place. And there's <laughs> nothing exculpatory. Like you said, Mike, it's just, it's, it, it, yeah, I, 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 it's bizarre. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing. And I, I, here's the thing. I, here's, I think if there's a 9-11 style commission, I'd be curious to see whether they go down the road of calling congressional leaders. They have to. They, I they mean, do. McCarthy is a key witness to yeah. this. I don't see how he could escape it. Would he be able to say, I'm not going to talk about my conversations with the president? On what grounds? He's not, not, privileged. not executive privilege. Yeah, yeah. He's not a White House or administration official. Um, by the way, what has McCarthy said about the uh, commission proposal? Uh, he hasn't said anything, I don't think. Um, and I tried to get word in from the House administration people who are running this uh, on the Republican side. And they're they're not talking. But Pelosi did say today it has to be bipartisan. So she said the bill is written up. She's given it to the Republicans and they're reviewing oh, there it. Is, so there is a bill. That's what I was asking before. Yeah, but is we there... haven't seen it yet. And I haven't been able to get it from anyone, although I've been trying all day. So, all right. you know, I think there but I think it will be evenly divided between R's and D's is my guess. OK. All right. Speaking, we were talking about McConnell a moment ago. Trump issued that scathing press statement uh, about him. What is going on, um, you know, with that relationship? Will McConnell at some point uh, feel like he has to do what Kevin McCarthy did and go break bread with him? That doesn't seem likely right now. Trump uh, did his round of interviews yesterday with right-wing media in which he dangled the idea of, of the 2024 race, but, uh, but said it's too early. Anna, what, what, is, uh, what do you think Trump's uh, long game is here? I mean, I think the relationship between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump is, is frayed, right? I think if you look at Mitch McConnell, all to Jake's point earlier, he cares about his winning. And when Donald Trump was in office, he lost the House, he lost the Senate, and he lost the White House. I, I think the calculation is purely to the fact that Mitch McConnell was offended by the behavior. Uh, most recently, I think they never really had a close personal relationship. It was a relationship of convenience and the fact that they, you know, Mitch McConnell wanted to get a lot of judges confirmed and did so under the Trump administration. For Donald Trump, you know, I think his ego was bruised. I think he doesn't, he was, he didn't like what Mitch McConnell had to say about it and he had to lash back. It's very Trumpian. The fact that he was going to go after his appearance, that says so much more about Donald Trump than it does Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, and I think the bigger question is going to truly be, is Donald Trump kind of interested in this talk radio, conservative TV, finding sycophants to buy things and, and kind of keep his fundraising going along? Or is he really going to try to play a role in some of these races? Because then you could see Mitch McConnell versus Donald Trump, and that could get very interesting in some of these key states that they're going to need. Because Mitch McConnell, maybe they'll support some of the same candidates, but Mitch McConnell is about winning, and he's going to find the candidate that's the most electable on the Republican side and support him. And remember, exactly, I completely agree with Anna here, but Adding one point on top of that, remember, they've been in different places on candidates in the past. 
he he wanted to support um, or, or thought about supporting uh, Roy Moore in Alabama, right? I mean, Anna, we remember that episode. We right. we we dealt with that episode in the book. Um, Mitch McConnell wanted Luther Strange. There have been a bunch of these episodes where Trump's wanted to, you know, Mitch McConnell has done something that's actually rare in D.C. He gets involved in these primary fights. D.C. wants to win races, right? He's a pretty astute political mind when it comes to these Senate races. And um, Trump, uh, Anne is 100 percent right. He's won one election. You know, I don't doubt that he has a big following and a big movement, but he's won one election once, lost the House, lost seats in the Senate and then lost the Senate. And lost the presidency. So I would put my my money on Mitch McConnell's political acumen before Donald Trump's, wouldn't you, Anna? Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, who's still in elected office and who is it? Right. 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 So what about 2022? Is Lara Trump going to run in North Carolina? Will Trump be out there primarying the um, uh, the rhinos who did not back him in impeachment? What do you expect? I'm pretty bearish on this, to be honest with you. I'm bearish. I don't know that he has, like, I'll say two things. I think he, if he wanted to, he would have the capability to be influential in primaries. Does he have, the question to me is, does he have the um, infrastructure at all to to do this or the know-how or the, you know, it's one thing to say I'm going to beat Liz Cheney. It's another thing to have 10 Republicans in the race trying to get the Trump mantle and um, trying to beat Liz Cheney. So does he have the infant? Go ahead, and I could see you're bursting at the seams and about no, to tell me saying, why I'm wrong here. The attention span. It is one thing to be kind of a flash in the pan of like, I'm. this is the flashpoint right now with Liz Cheney, but is he going to truly do the work? That's the question I, I have more than anything, right? You know, does Don Jr. have kind of the bug? Yeah, I think, I don't think the Trump name or Trumps in general are going to go away or certainly not all the people that make money off of them and all the consultants are going to want to keep them in the game. But the president has not had a huge attention span for this kind of activity that it really takes a months and months long approach. And I, I would also say that, like, there are plenty of candidates around the country betting that the Trump brand is going to be is, you know, are using the stock market uh, lingo are shorting the Trump brand and saying, actually, we're going to run as basically conservative establishment Republicans. And we don't believe the Trump brand has much staying power. And we're going to let conservatives fight each other. And we're going to try to be Republicans that like get 30 percent of the primary electorate, let a bunch of conservatives eat at each other and then try to win in the middle. And I think a lot of people think that in the post-Trump era in 2022 and 2024 is a better theory of the case. And, and let's not forget, Trump has some serious legal troubles on the horizon that is going to preoccupy him. I I think the Fulton County investigation has the most legs of all. And um, I I think he's going to be seriously preoccupied with trying to stay out of jail in Fulton County, Georgia, as a result of the uh, uh, DA Fannie Willis's uh, investigation. Do you you think he's going to go, you think he can go to prison for that? I think he can go to prison. Yes, I think he will. I mean, look, it's a Fulton County, a, a no-nonsense Fulton County prosecutor who's got a good set of facts with more to uncover all the phone calls Trump was making to try to um, uh, pressure the Georgia officials to change the result, the phone calls to Kemp, the phone calls 
trying to get through to Raffensperger, um, the firing of the U.S. attorney in Atlanta. I mean, you put it all together and uh, it's it seems like a pretty compelling set of facts there. And it's a Fulton County grand jury, a Fulton County jury that will hear the case. Yeah, I think he's got a serious uh, chance of going to state prison in Fulton County, Georgia. That's it. I, 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 and I also think, remember the, I mean, there's news today that the, in New York, they've, they put a new prosecutor on the case. Um, I, I, I agree with you. And I think that, um, I think that people at the moment, I don't think they're enjoying politics, but I think they're enjoying the relative calm, <laughs> you know, I think yeah. not waking up to some sort of crazy, like 10 on the, on the meter, you know, tweet is, is actually like, Better yeah. than not, you know, the better than the alternative. Anna, am I wrong? <laughs> I think you're tell right. Tell him no. Do you have do you ever tell him he's wrong? Yeah, oh yes. <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> That's Let me ask both of you uh about a dark trend uh within the Republican Party, uh, since you guys are up there living and breathing it every day. And this is actual uh, elected Republicans um, who are either outright conspiracy theorists, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or, or you know, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs. Uh, some of them are more conspiracy theory curious. Some of them are opportunists. But um, this is a real thing. I mean, you know, and, and I wonder how pervasive it is, uh, whether Kevin McCarthy uh, or any of the Republican leaders up there are thinking about ways to purge that strain from the Republican Party, if that's possible. And if they, if the dilemma for them is we don't want them necessarily getting elected to Congress, but we need the voters, we need the uh, QAnon voters and people out there. And we're talking about millions of people who are, you know, flirting with conspiracy theorists or are conspiracy theorists themselves. How does the Republican Party deal with that? Yeah, and I mean, I think, listen, I think a couple of things. One, they aren't really dealing with it right now. I mean, to be totally honest, right, Kevin McCarthy had an opportunity to make a an example out of Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he chose not to. I think that it's also important to just understand these are a lot, there's a lot of these people that have gotten elected under the Trump banner that are QAnon curious or conspiracy theorists, as you said, like she's not alone. And it's only going to become a growing part of their demographic as they get to be further and further kind of radicalized um, away from kind of traditional conservatism, away from the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kingsinger's of the world. Those that's a very that's becoming a much, much smaller part of the population of the Republican Party, particularly vis-a-vis the House of Republicans. Can I say one more thing to this? I think in the fog of I think McCarthy and congressional leaders get get um, fall victim to being in the fog of war, where in the House, it's about 218, 218 members. In the Senate, it's about 51 or 50 in this case. And and McCarthy's view is, well, they sent me this person and this person is a Republican and this is what I've been dealt. And I could either work with this or I can, I could fight an uphill and probably impossible battle to get rid of them. And, and McCarthy, and this is a little bit in the weeds, like in the house Republicans don't get into primaries, meaning they don't support people in primaries. So whoever gets sent to Washington, they're in, they're in the Republican part, the house Republican conference. And remember McCarthy is about, Two less than two years away, if he wins the House majority in in November 2022, 
he's a, a he's less than two years away from a speaker vote in which he'll have to get 218 of his fellow uh, Republicans to vote for it, or 270. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and all these people are likely to be, you know, have to have to be some of those votes. And that's kind of the reality of yeah. it. And that's what he has to contend with. We'll see how McCarthy uh, does when he gets hauled before a public hearing by the new 9-11 style commission and gets questioned under oath about his conversation with Trump that day. Uh, I think that's going to be a really tricky moment for him um, because he's going to face some really tough choices. But look, enough about uh, the state of Congress, uh, state of American political parties and the state of the country. Let's talk about the state of Punchbowl News, what it is, what you uh, guys are uh, hoping to accomplish. You were both with Politico along with your uh, third rail there, John Bresnahan. And um, I do want to just do a little shout out for John Bresnahan, who was um, famously described by Ben Smith as a Navy (laughs) veteran with the demeanor of a guy you've dragged out of a dive bar in the eighth inning of a Yankees game. Let him know we didn't have him on today because we are saving him for the moment. We can do a live skullduggery from a dive bar outside Yankee <laughs> Stadium. Uh, that we would have him on. Um, so that said, what's the idea behind Punchbowl? What's the niche you're covering? And um, who's your audience? Punchbowl News, we're super excited. We launched uh, January 1st, basically, with a soft launch. Obviously, thought it was going to be a, a newsy time for us. Our credo is power, people, politics. So we're super focused on the most important people in Washington, trying to forecast a little bit about what they're thinking, what's going to happen in Washington. Uh, We get our name from the Secret Service nickname Punchbowl for the Capitol. Um, We have a free morning newsletter that you can subscribe to. And then we have an afternoon and evening newsletter that's part of our premium membership And I would say the other thing that I think really differentiates us from the marketplace is we really are trying to create a community in the sense that we're not looking to just push out information. We're really looking for conversation with our readers who are our sources, who are the people who are influencing all the things that are happening in Washington. And so you're going to see us do a lot of kind of member only events and try to engage with them in different ways. And I would be remiss as we are on a podcast, if I did not say we also have a daily podcast Monday through Friday called The Daily Punch. You can subscribe to that. But Jake and I kind of talk back and forth about our kind of top stories and how we're thinking about them each day. Our, our niche is is we believe the capital is the, the, the center of power in Washington and thereby the world. And, um, and we feel like we know the place better than anybody else. And we know the leadership, which is basically where we focus all of our energy, Pelosi, McConnell, McCarthy, and Schumer, and the White House, the leadership of the White House. And we, you think, we think you could understand all of Washington basically by orienting your view around them. I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about it is it feels it's, it's narrowly tailored. You, you are picking a, a certain number of stories located in an important place that tell the larger story. And it feels like these political newsletters sometimes suffer from mission creep. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger and lose that identity and and definition. And as a consumer who has to get up early every morning to read all this stuff, I really appreciate it because you guys are curating in a very smart way. 
uh, and I have to spend less time reading. And I feel like in that shorter amount of time, I'm learning more. So it's Thank really you very terrific. much. We really we appreciate that. Great addition. It's a great read. Now you have free content and you have premium content. How do you decide what you save for the you know for the money paying subscribers? Like it's, it's it's an art, not a science, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, listen. The morning is always going to be free, um, and everything else is behind the paywall. And I would say this: our um, our subscriber numbers are like basically where we thought we would be after you know a couple years. Uh, so we really? feel really, yeah, I, it's been amazing, and we feel really great about it, and we feel really lucky um, because. Uh, it's never easy starting your own thing, right, Anna? Yeah, no, we're we're thrilled with it. And you can go to punchbowl.news to subscribe to the morning. And if we get you addicted to that, then hopefully you'll come along for the ride and become one of our premium members. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, uh, so, uh, Anna and Jake, I want to uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and um, Skullduggery listeners, subscribe to Punchbowl News. Um, Jake and Anna, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks so much. Th- thank you so much. 